0: Welcome into a very, can I share this with you? Little dreary out today. Little rainy, little cold. I've been planting tulip bulbs at a time of year where many people are like, you can't plant tulip bulbs, which is wrong. We'll talk in a minute. But these rainy days, I've mentioned this a couple of times on Instagram, still getting used to this rainy, cooler weather. I am definitely finding myself, the older I'm getting, and I'm not ancient by any means, that the warm weather thing, really my vibe, that was the other thing I learned from our two-year trek in Connecticut. It's too cold in Connecticut. It hit negative 22 one day, and I think that was, I was mentally like, okay, check, please. I'm out. That was pretty much the end of Connecticut, for me, mentally at least. This week, we're going to cover two topics that I think are really opposite, but sort of the same. We'll get there. you will see. Topic number one is going to be how to create a garden where you always have something going. And then topic number two, this is where we get down to the nitty gritty. And it'll lead us into next week's podcast and a couple of the ones coming up because we get a little industry driven price, history, story, why things are the way they are. So really wide ranging, but super important topics this week on Not Just Going House Stories, episode number six. Whenever I get comments, I love it and makes you feel good, number one, right? You're not living in a vacuum of social media. People are paying attention, so you get that comment. And I like to engage, as we all know, on the comments. And I had a really interesting one this week. The comment was, how do you create a garden where something is always happening? This is, I'm going to take a moment to pick on a problem. The United States has always had a very spring garden mentality. It's not really for the long haul. It's about the months of April, May, and maybe a little bit into June. But a lot of the garden here has never been a summer garden, which is such a shame because really, you know, dahlia is obviously the easy one for me to pick on. Some of the best plants of the year don't bloom till summer. So the question is, how do you build a garden where you always have something going, where you don't run into that problem where spring was great and then? It sort of went nowhere. And let me tackle this how I approach it. Now, remember, my big rule above all of these last week's episode, gardening rules, is plant what you love. And one of the mistakes that we run into is we'll pick on peonies because they're such a well known and easy to pick on plant. There are peonies that are really early blooming. Uh, there's one that's actually called uh, early red or little red or Something early, red, little red scout, something like that, you know, some kind of not that great of a name. But it's a small red peony that comes up extremely early and then is over. Then on the flip side of it, there are peonies that are super late. And if you counted the time between those early peonies and those late peonies, you would probably get close to almost 30 to 45 days in some cases. It's that extreme, depending upon where you are at in the world. So let's pick on dahlias for a minute. Same thing exists. Some of the dahlias, extremely early. And some others, extremely late. Here's an example. Salmon runner, really early, beautiful, and stayed great the whole year, so it did not miss a beat. On the flip side of that is Shiloh Noel. Shiloh Noel is a great dahlia, but it is late. In particular, compared to salmon runner, that's one for me that was probably... We're pushing almost 50 to 60 days difference when the one started blooming to the next one. That's a huge amount of time. And in particular, I've got a long growing season here, so I can have that. I can have a 60-day buffer. But if you're in a place like Minnesota, the upper Midwest in the United States, or Northern Europe, sometimes that 60 days, that's rough. You may be right on your frost date for that, where your first frost of the year happens. That flower may bloom just for like a day or two. So, why is that so important? Well, think about it this way if you love peonies and you go down the peony road, you could have peonies for almost 45 days. And no matter where you're at in the world, that's a pretty good chunk of your growing season. Now, think about the dahlias. We're talking 60 days on those two. So, now we've got 105 days of blooming between just four flowering plants. That's it. So the question is, is it so much about planting a lot of different varieties? Sometimes no. It's about planting different, this is a key term here, different cultivated varieties or cultivars of the same plant. Same thing with tulips. I'm staring in front of some tulips that I picked up at sprouts, by the way, which always scares me because you see how cheap Commodity flowers from across the world are priced at, and you're like, wow, they sell tulips cheap. But anyways, so tulips have the same thing. Early tulips all the way to late tulips. Same zone, right? Almost 30, 40 days, sometimes in difference. So what I really want you to focus in on is still stay with the thought of what plants do I love most? Then we're going to have to go a little deeper than we thought we would. And I was talking earlier today with uh, my guest that will join us next week, which is uh, Rebecca Reed from David Austin Roses. And we're going to have a really long conversation about David Austin. I'm going to mention him at the end of this podcast. But we talked about the same thing, how there are so many people that just aren't familiar that there are so many plant-cultivated varieties in a group. And you're going to have to get out of that typical thinking. It's not one-stop shopping for plants. And it never was. That's another misnomer. It's not really changed. Your local garden center, no matter how great they are, are they going to be able to carry a hundred different peony types? No, that's unrealistic for them financially. So you're going to have to find specialty nurseries to deal with some of these subjects. And that's where you're also going to find more information, typically, about what is a really early-blooming peony and what's a late-blooming peony. And then order those Because now that you're going to be able to create, maybe let's say you do this. Say you we're going to continue to pick on peonies. I've said the word peony more time. If you were doing a drinking game, for every time I said the word peony, you will be unconscious probably about now. So let's say we buy six peonies and we stagger them. We make sure we get an early, a mid, and a late. Well, now we have got two plants in a small garden that are going to be blooming right on top of each other. It may get us through five to six weeks of the growing season. Just in that one plant. And every plant is that way. Cosmos, same thing. There's early Cosmos. There's some late Cosmos. By the way, love Cosmos for a late summer accent flower. They get really big. They have that spray foliage. The blooms vary a lot. There's a chocolate Cosmos that's pretty good too. Most of the times you're going to find those from either cells, plugs, or seeds. Burpee seeds online actually sells some cells end plugs. They sell cells, which is enough. That's like a Sally Seashell kind of vibe. I just noticed that. But they have those. That's another place you can check that out. But again, it's that same thinking. One of the things that I have been super frustrated with dahlias on, that information is hard to find on dahlias. What's an early blooming variety versus a late blooming? For me as a flower grower, like big scale here, going you know six, seven, almost 10,000 dahlias this upcoming year, I don't want everything to be super early. And I obviously don't want anything to be super late. I want a nice, just like you would in a garden, a succession of blooms, right? I want about 25% early, 25% after that, and so on. And then eventually we hit that big crescendo where everything's going at the same time. Those are the moments we want to create. But we don't want to have those gaps just like you don't in a garden. You can also look at it this way. I've always wanted to try to create gardens that are interesting all year. That's why I have so many conifers, have Japanese maples, and they all do trade off with each other throughout the course of the year. I have two beautiful witch hazels that have got some good age to them, and those don't bloom till January, but for me, that's the sign of spring. It's coming, right? It's that day that you have in January where it's cold, maybe there's ice, there's snow, whatever it might be, and you see those blooms. It's the hope. It's the north star that spring will eventually get there no matter how cold it is today. So even like a witch hazel, that can be the beginning of your garden year. Now we get into things like bulbs, tulips, daffodils, things like that. Then they hand off to things like peonies. Then peonies are there, and they do their part of the show. Then irises show up, and then we get into the summer flowering things like daylily, hemoroculus, which I've talked about before. We get into things like cosmos, and dahlia and chrysanthemum, scabiosa, the little tiny guys you may have seen before. All of those more in that summer window. So there's always that nice movement. But one of the key things you have to do is find great varieties that you love and then resource the information that you need. And then to see if those are early blooming, late blooming, where they're at. And then focus a lot of effort into those. Go big with that. And in gardens, I love to see you buy things in threes. And then, as an example, if we found three mid season peonies and three late blooming peonies, I would go three of that, three of that, and then I would sprinkle them, but keep them in that grouping. And then almost think of it as an orchestra the trombone plays, then the flute, then the violin, and they hand off like that in this succession. And the other thing I cannot get across enough to people plant closer. You do want to densely plant. This has been, I don't know, I think this comes from like parking lots and landscapes and things where they're just planting them and then they're going to come back once, twice a year to do maintenance and maybe they'll do, you know, bring a string trimmer monthly. But in a garden, tight is good. You want this lush green foliage and textures all colliding with each other with the colors and then we have this real kaleidoscope effect. So keys to a succession garden. Number one, look deeper in what you may have thought existed. Research a lot of different cultivated varieties. Get plant types that you love. Don't just get something because you go, oh, that's a good spring flower. That's a great summer flower. That summer flower, you find there might be a species or cultivated variety of it that goes earlier. But find good spring flowers that you love. Then go crazy. Buy them in threes. Plant them tight. Do those groupings of three in tight clusters. Not too far from each other you know, enough where you'd say, okay, that tulip is going to go, then these tulips or those peonies, those dahlias. Think of it in that way. Like you're creating artwork. The biggest key I can tell you about gardening, it is much more of a creative pursuit than a practical pursuit. So always go into it with that. You don't worry about if you draw outside the lines occasionally. So be creative with it. It's got to be an experience for you where you have fun with it and you don't look at it with all those rules. So, you just told me, Steve, that I need to get knee-deep in some of these varieties. And now, I'm thinking about it, and I'm looking online. These plants are a little bit more expensive than I thought they were going to be. Now, I'm about to pull back the curtain a little. So, here's my experience with this. So, I ran operations and sales for a pretty large-sized nursery in Oregon. I'm going to give you some real insider tip information here. So we did trees primarily. That was what we really focused in on. And we would grow a tree. We'd graft, propagate, go back and listen to previous podcasts for any of those definitions. And we would have the tree that we would raise for usually about seven years. We had some larger specimen trees that we would get even into the 10, 12 year range occasionally. That we were really putting some effort into that tree. We just didn't plan it out and let it sit there. We planted it. We fertilized it. We pruned it. We sprayed it if it needs spraying for something. We irrigated it if we needed water. A lot of maintenance that went into these trees. And then we would dig the tree because we did all field-grown production. We would dig the tree, literally either with uh, people digging or occasionally machines, but some combination of the two. We would dig the tree out of the ground. Then we would wrap it in burlap and then we would ship it across the country. Many cases we were selling those trees at a wholesale pricing of somewhere between 20 to $70, let's call it. And even some of those trees that we were selling for $20 or $30 would end up at retail garden centers for occasionally $150, $200. That was a problem. It, I know it's, it's a problem for you, right? You're walking into the garden center and you're thinking to yourself, why is this tree $200, $300? And it was a problem for us. Let me explain to you real quick the grower philosophy on this. So we're doing field-grown production, which we were. We plant out a row of trees. We then want to grow them for five to seven years. And then we need to clear out that whole area that we planted. So why? So we can put new trees in there. So we don't find a year where we're like, wait a second. We don't have any trees that are old enough to sell this year. Can't have that. So you have to have a rotation, a cycle, right? This is no different than in agricultural farming, how every year, you turn over a field. But in our case, it was a little more complicated because you're literally managing a five to seven-year crop rotation. So the complexity of that was really a lot of pressure. You didn't want to have a plant that didn't sell, and then you're just stuck with them where you have to dig out 100, 200, 300, 400, 1,000 trees that didn't sell, and what do you do with them? Well, there were cases, and it still happens to this day, where growers dig out those trees and burn them. Yes, I just said that. Your brain may have exploded when I said it. Think of Japanese maples and how expensive those are sometimes in retail garden centers. We had many a tree that we just pulled out and burnt. Was there anything wrong with it? No, just didn't sell. So having garden centers that didn't sell through their products, meaning they didn't sell all of them and they needed a lot more from us, was a problem. And I used to say this to our garden center customers, I need you to not sell two of this plant. I need you to sell 10 of it. So if I can get you to sell it for less money, will we sell more of them? If the plant's not $200 and let's say it's $100, will we sell more of them? And this is one of the great debates in the economy of plants right now. One of the other comments that I saw that I really did find interesting, and it's something we're going to get into in the upcoming week's podcast too, was the cost of some plants. And someone commented how this particular plant, they liked them, but they were really expensive per plant. And I can't argue with that. But what I can tell you is, if you can buy as close to the grower as possible, you will pay less. And I can also tell you that the grower most of the time, is making the least money in the entire cycle. When I was running the nursery, it was immediately after the 2008-2009 housing crisis. The 2008-2009 housing crisis, for those of you that remember, was also associated with a huge spike in gas prices across the country. We got upwards of $4.50 on diesel gasoline, and that was a real problem. We were growing plants in Oregon. Most of our customers were east of the Mississippi. In fact, most of them were in the northeastern United States. So we're literally having to travel 4,000 miles across the country with diesel gas at $4 plus per gallon. Yeah, those were some expensive trucks. It would be upwards of $6,000 to transport a container of trees from Oregon to the Northeastern United States, $6,000 just for the transportation, not to mention the plants, which really became a huge issue. And I can guarantee you the shipping companies were making more money than we were as a grower off of those shipments. So what does all this have to do with me, Steve? I'm just a gardener at home. That's all, all this economic talk. Where it has to do with you is this is a sourcing issue. And I know there's, there's a lot of people that will talk about, and I've talked about it here, about the difference between organic principles and chemical principles and synthesized chemicals versus natural chemicals, and we've gotten into some of that debate, and much of it leans towards, at times, irrational for both parties. But the one subject that's really, really important to me is your sourcing. Can we buy plants from the grower? Can we find and buy them from them? Why is that important? We're supporting the people that put the most work into the plant. We are also supporting the people who do the most research on the plant, who will have the best information about the plant. And we're also supporting the people that wait for the most important part. We'll have plants 10 years from now. If I don't support the really cool little nursery that's trying to grow crazy, interesting peonies, let's say, and nobody supports them, guess what there will be less of in the world? Really cool, interesting peonies. And there's a balance. Like For me, as a grower at this scale, I have to support some places that are the biggest in the country or the world. And I have to support other people that are some of the smallest. And that's what I try to do, is bring balance to this a little bit from my perspective. But you as a home gardener, you can really source things out interesting. You can find mail-order nurseries that are online, that do to the peonies. I'm going to have some of these people as guests coming up in the upcoming weeks here. That's a really important thing. It's going to help you, number one, have a way more interesting garden than the people down the street who only go to the big box store. And number two, it's going to give you diversity in that planting scheme like we just talked about before. You'll have the peonies that bloom for the full six-week range because you'll have five or six different varieties and they'll all be doing something interesting. You'll have that tactical advantage Because most of what we are seeing in the plant world now has gone back to commodities. We are seeing less interesting plants in the traditional mass market retail than we've ever seen. Because the growers, after that 2009 housing crisis, had to get way more conservative. You couldn't take the chance that this really cool, interesting plant that may be fantastic, that your buyers on the other side of the country didn't know its name, and they didn't buy it. Despite it being great, they just didn't know about it, and they didn't buy it. That created a real problem, as we talked about. You can't clear that field if they don't buy it. So many of the nurseries that were doing unique, rare, interesting things have scaled that back. And now, the people that are doing rare, unique, and interesting mostly have gone online, and they're much more mom and pop. And I don't say mom and pop in any way. It's a derogatory term, but just to give you a sense of scale. My business is mom and pop, that those people are the ones we need to support. And I don't think it needs to become an ethical debate. It just needs to become a debate of, I like cool stuff. That's always what I've always said. I've said that to people in the food and restaurant world, too. I don't support local farms just because I'm not that person. I don't go, oh, I just support them because. I try to support the ones that are growing the things that taste the best. They grow the most delicious things. That's all. It's a real selfish pursuit on my end. I like to support places that do really cool things. The end, period. Matter of fact, just today. A lovely wife, she finally did it, people. You heard me on the podcast last week talk about how I don't have an Australian tree fern. Guess what I now own? An Australian tree fern. And it came from a small nursery down in Boca Raton, Florida. Top Tropicals. Shout out to the folks there. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, is pursuing those things. Now, If there are local businesses around you, small businesses, give them a chance. But then don't stay committed to that just because it's their local, especially now. We're all so comfortable buying products online. Plants are going to get no different for you. And then in an ideal world, your local independent garden center works with you. And then you have a great relationship locally and you can go around the world and select from different online places. Now you have the best of both worlds, the brick and mortar local and the small places that are online. But just make sure we're committed and supporting places that are doing cool, interesting, creative things with their plants, and you're getting the real most return on your dollar that you can. And I would not want this week to close out without me talking about really unique and creative cool plants and talking about one of the most unique, cool, creative plants people of the last 75 years. David Austin Sr. passed away this week at 92 years of age. I'm going to take, uh, hopefully, a bit of a different path with this, and the next week we're going to follow up in depthly with Rebecca Reed from David Austin about this subject. When I heard the news... That David Austin had passed away. It wasn't too much of a surprise. I was aware that he had been uh, not in the best of health um, the last couple of years. But it really struck me how there was a time where people in the plant world were very exploratory. They were creative. It was a bit mad scientist and a bit world explorer. And it was one of the few pursuits in life that you could do both at the same time. You could search out and find new plants from exotic locations, and you could try to make something new out of them, and hybridize, and cross-pollinate, and see what happens, and really be adventurous. David Austin, for those of you that don't know, I think the most compelling part of the story is his nursery was not new, even though you may have just heard about it in the last 10 or 20 years. David Austin, in fact, started his work with plants as far back as the 1940s and really began hybridizing roses in the 1960s. And it wasn't until the 1980s that he started to display at the Chelsea Flower Show and started to get notoriety there. This was a man who spent more than half his life able to pursue one of the things in life he was incredibly passionate about. He was also a, a prolific writer and a reader as well. But Roses, for him, he got to spend his life doing one of the things he loved, and I think 92 years of that isn't something to be mourned, but something to be celebrated for any of us, an aspirational story if there ever was one. But the undertold part of the David Austin story is, when he started to work on developing Old Garden roses and bringing them to the forefront and modernizing them where they had more disease resistance, they were better growers, they didn't have some of the problems of some of the old garden roses. He was really swimming upstream against the popularity current of the moment. This was a person who at that time, if you would have had him come in front of a group of horticulture experts or rosarians of the moment and had him explain what he was about to do, they would have told him uh, are you okay? Those aren't going to be popular. That's not what people want. People today only want hybrid tea roses, the high center point Valentine's Day rose that we all see all the time. That's what was trending at that time. And not just for a minute, they were the trend from the 1960s all the way till, oh, I don't know, maybe the last 10 years or so. We've seen a little bit of a departure from them, but they're still the main rose in the commodity world. So for 30, 40 years, he was going against the trend. Think about that. This wasn't an epiphany moment. This wasn't an Uber that we're talking about. This wasn't a so called disruptor in a category. This was a slow burn, hashtag Casey Musgraves, to make his passion a success. And if you look at that element of the story and you think, here's a person not only with great vision, for what would be a better rose in some ways, or the rose that we had a certain charm and romanticism with. But here's someone who had persistence, who continued to move towards that goal through his entire life. I think one of the best things about the 92 years of the David Austin story, there are so many people that don't get to see the success of their life's work in their own lifetime. And I always have mixed emotions about that. You know, so many artists, you know, they always say, don't get to see that, but David Austin did. There's a great photo out there, and I'll try to find it, and we have Rebecca Reed on. I'm sure she'll help me out with this, of David Austin, the very, one of the first times they displayed at the Chelsea Flower Show. And it was such a humble beginning for what they were doing. And now you see, and they've won so many uh, gold awards at the Chelsea Flower Show since and have become really the standard for roses across the world. But that first photo, really that's what the story is, isn't it? Today we see the name and they're one of the most popular roses grown across the world. And it's actually sort of become, is it a David Austin rose, despite the fact they grow so many great varieties? They've sort of been generically branded as the Kleenex of roses occasionally. But that's the story of David Austin, is it's not this end result that we see today, which is beautiful and fantastic, but it's that beginning. It's that perseverance to stay with something. So, in close, I would never look at David Austin passing at 92 years of age as something to mourn. It is something to be incredibly celebrated, and if anything, aspirational for all of us. That all of us should be so lucky to find something that we're passionate about, pursue it, have the perseverance of character and attitude and intellect to stay with it, even in difficult times. And to still be there at the end, where we see that thing that we were passionate about, get its day, where it is a success, and have that sense of accomplishment, just like David Austin.
1: Look at my window, what do I see? A little bluebird looking back at me. He sings a song all alone in his nest And I wonder if he's singing about loneliness I open my window and take it all in As I listen to a number by my new blue friend Is he looking for a lover or did one just leave? Does he really feel blue or does his color to see? Tell me, why is the bluebird blue? There's a song he sings, a somber tune. Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me, why is the bluebird in blue? A hummingbird don't hang around too long. A mockingbird makes a living off of other bird songs. And I heard somewhere that a robin weeps. But the bluebird is still one that I can't read. the bluebird blue is a song he sings a song to tune does he feel like I feel since I lost you tell me why is the blue Spring is out and there's love in the air And I know that I've got plenty to share The bluebird's blue and buddy so in my hand I feel about as low as the bluebird fly, he asks. Tell me why is the bluebird blue Is a song he sings, a somber tune does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird, why is the bluebird blue? Is a song he sings, a somber tune? Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird blue? Yeah baby why is the bluebird blue? Tell me why is the bluebird blue?